Same-sex marriage, everybody's got a view on it. More states than ever before are licensing it. But in most cases, that was not initially because of a law being passed enshrining same-sex marriage as a right. Most often, it was because courts struck down laws that were passed against it. Judges are making the call, using the Constitution for their guide, which is a different filter on the issue from the ones that most of us use. But what then does the Constitution Tell us about same-sex marriage. Well, it sounds like there must be a debate in that, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are in Philadelphia partnering with the National Constitution Center for one of our constitutional debate series programs. We have four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against this motion, two against two, the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here in Philadelphia will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters first of all. Please welcome uh, John Eastman. Ladies and gentlemen, John Eastman. John, welcome. You are chairman of the board of the National Organization for Marriage, a professor at Chapman University's Fowler School of Law and founding director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence. You are counsel of record. That organization is counsel of record in two of the briefs that are filed in the Supreme Court same-sex marriage case, and you have an insider's view personally of the Supreme Court uh, because you are a former clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Any doubt in your mind where he would be on this issue? No more doubt on my mind on his views than on Justice Ginsburg's views on the case. <laughs> and, and Justice Ginsburg being the, the left-leaning member yeah. of the court. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks, John Eastman. And, John, your partner is? My partner is Sheriff Gerges, and he's an Ivy League-educated expert on the institution of marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, Sheriff Gerges. Sharif, you are also arguing for the motion that the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriage. You are co-author of the book, What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. Um, You're currently pursuing both a Ph.D. in philosophy from Princeton and a law degree from Yale. You've got a lot of free time on your hands. Um, You were born in Cairo but didn't stay there very long. Isn't that right? Right. Actually, I grew up mostly in Delaware which in other parts of the country is a conversation stopper. <laughs> but, but it's the first state. That's true. Yeah, the first ones to sign on to the Constitution. We had nothing to lose. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Sheriff Gerges. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. We have two debaters arguing against it. They're against the not. Um, let's please welcome first Evan Wolfson. Evan Wilson, uh, you are founder and president of Freedom to Marry. You are author of the book Why Marriage Matters. Um, You are widely thought of as the architect of the national marriage equality movement. Um, And we read recently that your greatest hope uh, is that the Supreme Court's upcoming same-sex marriage ruling will put you out of a job. Does does that mean early retirement for you? (laughs) Well, I do hope that the Supreme Court will allow freedom to marry to close its doors, having achieved its mission, but neither my temperament nor my finances will really allow for retirement. So uh, hopefully, there, and fortunately, there are many other good causes to plunge into. All right. Well, we're glad to have you on our stage, and we want to Thank know who you. is your partner. My partner is my good friend, Kenji Yoshino. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenji Yoshino. Kenji Yoshino. 
Kenji, you're a professor at New York University School of Law. You're the author of a lot of books, including the just-released Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial. Uh, that tells the story of the Hollingsworth versus Perry uh, case out in California that overturned Proposition 8, California's ban on same-sex marriage. Considering what's coming up on the Supreme Court's docket this season, the timing for that book could not be better. Was that the plan all along? I wish I could claim such prescience, uh, John, but uh, it was totally happenstance. And I can say that the two people in the country who could match the same-sex couples who wanted to get married and wanted the Supreme Court to take the case in terms of their euphoria when the Supreme Court finally did take the case were my editor and my publisher. (laughs) Publishing is happy. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenji Yoshino and the team arguing against the motion the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriage. Now, this is a debate. One team will win and one team will lose, and that decision will be made by our live audience here in Philadelphia. By the time the debate has ended, you will have voted twice, once before hearing the arguments and then again after hearing the arguments, and the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms between those two votes will be declared our winner. So let's register your first vote. Take a look at those keypads at your seat. There are 10 digits on them. You only need to pay attention to one, two, and three. Take a look at the motion. Look at it carefully. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. If you agree with this motion, push number one. And if you disagree, push number two. And if you are undecided, which is a perfectly reasonable starting position, push Number three, you can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And if you push the wrong key by mistake, just correct yourself, and the system will lock in your last vote. And pay attention to, this, to the word not in the, in the motion tonight. Don't get caught by that. Okay, it looks like everybody's registered. Let's move on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater. In turn, our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Here to speak first for this motion, Sharif Girgis, co-author of the book What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Sharif Girgis. Well, thank you. And first I want to say it's a huge honor to be speaking opposite these really distinguished guests. I mean... Evan Wolfson, as they said, is the architect of the movement for same-sex marriage. He's a remarkable visionary and leader, whatever you think of the substance of the issue. And Kenji Oshino is rightly regarded, including by lots of my conservative friends, as one of the best teachers in the legal academy and certainly one of the best writers. I think you'll see all of that on display tonight. And it would worry me, except that I think you can be fully on board with their view of same-sex marriage as a policy matter and still agree with us that it's one of those very important policies where the Constitution's just silent. It leaves you free to pick. And the reason, in a nutshell, and I will be focusing on big picture in this part, is that the Equal Protection Clause is not enough. It says, don't be arbitrary. So have a reasonable vision of what marriage is and of its public purposes, and apply it equally, not arbitrarily. It doesn't tell you what vision of marriage to adopt, but that's what this whole debate is exactly about. Do we adopt the consent-based view of marriage that says it's fundamentally about deep romantic love and commitment, and that the reasons to recognize it are stability and dignity? In which case, yes, recognizing that equally requires recognizing same-sex relationships. Or do we have a different vision of marriage, 
the more traditional vision in our law, the conjugal view of marriage, that says marriage is fundamentally about that union in which a man and a woman are coming together and oriented to family life by the very nature of the bond. The act that makes marital love is the kind of act that makes new life, the only relationship that can give kids a shot at being reared by their own mother and father. The problems for the other side in this particular debate are that the Constitution doesn't tell you which of those views to adopt, and there's nothing inherently wrong with the conjugal view. Now, they're going to say, that's not true. That last part's not right. The only way you could make your way to the conjugal view is if you were motivated by animus. I think this is one of the easiest parts of the argument to solve, and I'd be interested to see if they have a response to it. History disproves this. This isn't the only way you can get to this view. In fact, there have been cultures that span the spectrum of attitudes towards homosexuality and still have the conjugal view of marriage in their law. Cultures that were perfectly aware of and celebrated long-term same-sex relationships in ancient Greece in various forms, for example, but still thought it had nothing to do with marriage. Cultures that were totally ignorant of our concept of gay identity. They didn't even know of the class in the way that we do today to have animus against it. Couldn't have been motivated by animus. They might say, well, maybe the view itself isn't motivated by animus, but the idea that same-sex marriage has anything to do with linking kids to their own mom and dad does. It's unreasonable. There's no link. And the problem with that view is that even some prominent same-sex marriage supporters reject it or reject something very close to it. So, for example, E.J. Graff says, of course, ideas have consequences, changing Our idea of marriage is going to have consequences for marriage practice. And he says in particular, it will be breathtakingly subversive to recognize gay marriage. It will introduce a revolt against the institution to its very heart, forever cutting the link between it and diapers. Andrew Sullivan says, of course, it's going to liberate us from not just complementarity, but lots of other patriarchal or oppressive norms that restrict the personality, like sexual exclusivity, norms that were tailor-made for opposite-sex relationships. Masha Gessen, a a same-sex marriage advocate, says it's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage shouldn't exist and that this is a stepping stone to its deinstitutionalization. They all agree that sexual complementarity, the idea of a man and a woman coming together as mother and father to their kids, and marriage law historically are all linked together. They just disagree on whether it's a good or bad to delink them. So whatever you think of that view, you might reject it, but it can't be motivated by irrationality. And maybe someone will say, well, okay, so the case law makes it clear that we can't have this vision of marriage. Professor Yoshino sometimes points to Turner that says, look, you don't lose your marriage rights when you enter a prison, because after all, you can have things like emotional commitment. And Professor Yoshino will say, well, there we go. That's the revisions, the consent-based view being enshrined in our case law. But just two lines down, it talks about the expectation of of consummation. It talks about the legitimation of children born into the union. It's clearly taking for granted the conjugal view that had always been the law and just saying apply that equally. That's the pattern for all the cases that he has brought up in his own writings. The last thing might be this. Well, it just imposes a separate status, a disadvantage, And so, a stigma. That's Justice Kennedy's words about DOMA. Maybe that's the problem. Just excluding same-sex relationships is all. That's directly a violation of equality. You don't have to go to all this stuff about picking views and which ones based on what reasons. And the only problem with that view is that 
If it works against this vision of marriage, it works against all of them. Every marriage law creates a separate status. The whole question is where to draw the lines, and do we have a reason for drawing them where we do? Does it make sense? Does it serve any public interest? Nothing our opponents tonight will say, to, can say will undermine the idea that there may be, that it's reasonable at least, whether you agree with it or not, to think that it's worth preferring biological parenting wherever possible, giving kids their best shot at it by using our marriage law unobtrusively to do that, and leaving other adults to live and love the lives of their choice. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah Girgis. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to present his argument against this motion, Evan Wolfson. He is founder and president of Freedom to Marry. Ladies and gentlemen, Evan Wolfson. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, My friend, Professor Yoshino, will address the arguments put forward by the opposition in support of continuing discrimination in marriage. In my time, I will focus on the Constitution's command of equality and the importance of the freedom to marry to same-sex couples, and thus why you should vote against the motion. And I think it's important to begin by noting we're not talking here about same-sex marriage, some other new thing. What we're talking about is the freedom to marry. The freedom to marry is a fundamental right affirmed by the Supreme Court at least 14 times. And in the United States, rights belong to individuals, not categories. A supermajority of Americans now support the freedom to marry for gay couples. Several polls showing over 60%, with majority support in every region of the country and across virtually every demographic. Now, even if there were not majority support, the court should uphold the Constitution. But the shift in public opinion tells us something. It tells us about the growing understanding as to how and why the Constitution does apply to gay people's lives and dreams and to our claim under the Constitution. As Americans have gotten to understand the the real consequences of exclusion from that right of marriage, and as Americans have gotten to see real families, not just theoretical categories and stereotypes and prejudices, they've come to understand how the Constitution's command applies equally to loving and committed couples of the same sex. The courts, too, like the American people, have shed what Justice Blackmun, in his dissent in the infamous 1986 case Bowers versus Hardwick, called willful blindness. And in the past two years, 65 courts, state and federal, appellate and trial level, Republican appointees and Democratic appointees have ruled now in favor of the freedom to marry with only the smallest handful coming out the other way, one of which is now on appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And in all those 65 cases, my favorite passage comes from the case in which we brought the freedom to marry to Utah. The judge in that case said, it is not the Constitution that has changed, but the knowledge of what it means to be gay or lesbian. Only those who are willfully blind to the common humanity of gay people today can deny what is clear under the Constitution. The Supreme Court, for example, has long recognized, quote, the freedom to marry as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. Loving versus Virginia. The court in another marriage case went on to say, quote, 
The right to marry is of fundamental importance for all individuals. Gay people share the same mix of reasons for wanting and needing the freedom to marry and for wanting and needing respect for their lawful marriages as non-gay Americans do. And the Supreme Court has spelled out what these attributes, what these aspects, what these interests in marriage are. My, my opponent just referred to the case, the case of Turner v. Safley, the case asking the question whether prisoners could be arbitrarily denied the freedom to marry. And in that case, the Supreme Court enumerated four important attributes of marriage. Marriage, the court said, under our constitution, in our time, not ancient Egypt, Rome, and Greece, under our constitution, in our time, the important attributes of marriage, the court said, are, number one, the opportunity to make a commitment to another person and to make a statement publicly about that commitment and have that commitment reinforced and and ratified by the community and the law. Number two, the spiritual and religious and personal meanings that marriage brings to many. Number three, the prospect, the court said, of what the court called physical consummation, which we usually call something else, particularly on a Saturday night. And number four, the tangible and intangible protections and responsibilities that marriage brings under our system of law. Gay people share an equal and vital interest in every single one of these important attributes. The freedom to marry is important, and therefore to be denied it is to not be treated equally, which, under the command of our Constitution, is a guarantee each and every American has. Under the Equal Protection Clause, a classification, particularly one that disadvantages a historically disfavored group of Americans, or a classification that implicates fundamental liberties, fundamental freedoms, or individual dignity, under the Equal Protection Clause, the government must have a sufficient and legitimate reason for drawing that line because the Constitution guarantees that all Americans subjected to a classification must be treated alike. In this case, because of the importance of what is being denied and because it is being denied to a group of Americans who are historically disadvantaged, who have been oppressed, who have been discriminated against, not only in private life but by the government itself, There's all the more reason for the courts to apply what court after court have now done, a meaningful review. And under that meaningful review, there is no justification for continuing this discrimination, and you should vote no. Thank you, Evan Wilson. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, fighting it out over this motion. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. You have heard two of the opening statements. And now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern John Eastman. He is the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service at Chapman University Fowler School of Law, where he also served as dean. Ladies and gentlemen, John Eastman. Thank you very much. I, too, am delighted to be here and to participate in this debate with such esteemed colleagues. Um, uh, In the brief that Evan Wilson filed in the Supreme Court in the marriage case is currently being heard there, he repeated over and over again the real definition of equal protection as comes to us from Supreme Court precedent. 
it's not a requirement that everybody be treated equally no matter what the circumstances. It's that all persons who are similarly situated shall be treated alike. And he repeats this over and over again. On page 7 of the brief, the operative presumption is that the legislature has presumably, permissively determined that the persons affected by a classification are not similarly situated in the first place. The real question for us is whether the Equal Protection Clause requires us to read uh, to, to understand or to adopt one version of marriage by which everybody agrees people are similarly situated. If the institution of marriage is simply about the loving relationships between adults and the dignity that the state might confer on that relationship, then there's no reason to distinguish one set of relationships from another. But if marriage is about something different than that, if it's about that unique biological complementarity of men and women structured in an institution that gives life to the, the offspring of that relationship, uh, then it's quite obvious that same-sex and opposite-sex couples are not similarly situated. And it doesn't violate equal protection not to treat groups who are not similarly situated uh, differently. Uh, that's the real question for us. Uh, what is the very purpose of marriage, therefore? Is it to, for the state to confer the dignity to recognize this adult relationship, uh, as Evan has claimed? Or is it something else, something much more profound? Why is it that every society in human history, across cultures and ages, have adopted something very similar to the man-woman understanding of marriage that we're talking about today? It's because there's something inherent in the nature of men and women and that function that they alone can, can provide that is essential to the marital relationship and to the creation of the next generation. When the Supreme Court 14 times in its cases has talked about marriage as a fundamental right, it has always been in the context of that basic understanding. In Loving versus Virginia, it went on in the sentence after the one Evan quoted to say because it's, it's necessary, it's essential to our very existence and survival. That's not true if you remove from that purpose of the institution this unique procreative ability of men and women. So what is the purpose of marriage? What is the state's interest or reason for getting involved in the institution of marriage at all? There are all sorts of relationships that the state doesn't have anything to say about. Friendships, brother-sister uh, relationships, mother-father, cousins, all sorts of relationships. The state has no interest in getting in, even if they're very loving relationships, even if they're romantically loving relationships. That's not why the state got in the marriage business in the first place and why it is the third party in every marriage contract. It's this unique procreative ability of men and women. Uh, and the third is if we're going to radically redefine that purpose, to be about adults rather than that child-centered focus, who decides that question? Well, in our society, in almost every case, uh, the Constitution does not settle those questions. It leaves it up to the people to decide. Uh, and that's the real question we have here. Has this constitutional provision adopted in 1868 already decided this question for us and says, you know, you people, you don't get to decide this question. We're not talking about discriminating against a group of people. That the Constitution has decided. We're talking about redefining a core societal institution to be a dramatically different purpose than it has ever had before. That question the Constitution doesn't decide. And it's, it's that question that we have to answer on the get-go. Um, so we've got a lot of history uh, here uh, uh, to try and figure out what exactly this purpose of marriage is. You go all the way back to California's cases. I'm from California, so I'll start with some there. hundred years ago, we had this clear. The first purpose of matrimony by the laws of nature and society is procreation. Uh, then a hundred years later, it shows it hasn't changed. The sexual, procreative, and child-rearing aspects of marriage go to the very essence of the marital relation. Justice Kennedy, in his 
uh, opening of his opinion in the Windsor case, the striking down the Defense of Marriage Act just two years ago, he says this at the very beginning. For marriage between a man and a woman, no doubt, has been thought of by most people as essential to the very definition of that term and to its role and function throughout the history of civilization. Those are the questions. That's, that's what we understand marriage to be. And it takes a radical redefinition of it, a, a, a change in its core purpose uh, to, create, uh, to create an equality of claim here. Uh, and it's that change in purpose that, that raises a lot of concerns and raises the state interest about not changing this. So what happens if we just change the institution of marriage? Well, we've, we've got to experiment with this. Fifty years ago, we changed another core aspect of marriage the norm of its permanence. We did it by adopting no-fault divorce laws. And we said, you know, if things hit a bump in the road, you can get out of your marriage a lot easier than you could. Everybody said at the time it won't affect the institution of marriage, it won't alter your marriage. But what we've seen over those 50 years is a dramatic reduction in the societal norms, the, the, the incentive that the institutional understanding, the definitional understanding provided. People no longer, uh, in many instances, think that marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's, it's a lifelong commitment unless I hit bumps on the road that I ceases to be in the way of my adult fulfillment and then I get out of it. That little shift changed it from a child-centered institution to an adult-centered institution and it has had dramatic consequences. Well, we're now talking about a shift that's even more profound to remove the gender complementarity, the gender diversity in the raising of children, uh, all of those things to make this more about the adult relationship than the child who are the offspring of that man-woman union uh, is going to dramatically reduce the incentives that that institution provides as cultural norms, cultural John, institutions John Eastman, I'm sorry, matter. your time is sorry, up. Sorry, I ran out of time. Thank I you very watching. much. Sorry, very much. Thank, Thank you, John Eastman. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to argue against this motion, Kenji Yoshino. He is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenji Yoshino. So I, too, am so honored to be here with esteemed colleagues to debate this crucial issue. And I want to begin with the language of the Equal Protection Clause, which says no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. When this language was ratified in 1868, we were coming off of a civil war. And the framers of that amendment could easily have limited the equality in question to the context of race. And in fact, if we look at the adjacent, roughly contemporaneous, 13th and 15th amendments, the three together known as the Reconstruction Amendments, we see that there are limitations to race, to color, to the previous condition of servitude. So why is it that the framers did not cabin the notion of equality to race, but instead adverted to a higher level of generality and said, this means equality for all individuals? I would offer to you that they jumped up to that level of abstraction because they wanted to leave it to the intelligence of successive generations to determine what equality meant for them. Indeed, if the Equal Protection Clause had not been framed in these majestic and soaring abstract terms, gender equality would not have been able to be a heightened scrutiny classification, by which I mean a classification that draws the particular solicitude of the court 
moving us from the presumption that a law is constitutional to moving us to the presumption that it's unconstitutional when heightened scrutiny is applied. Gender discrimination would not be a protected classification under the Equal Protection Clause if we adhered to the understanding of equality that obtained in 1868. So the question for my opponents is, do they believe that the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause, even though it was textually framed at that level of generality, does not protect women as a heightened scrutiny classification? And if it protects women, then why would it not protect sexual orientation? I would also offer to you that we can think about this, as Mr. Rosencrantz said at the beginning of this debate, either as a sex discrimination issue or as a sexual orientation discrimination issue. If we think about it as a sex discrimination issue, that will already make bars on same-sex marriage presumptively unconstitutional. If we think about it as a sexual orientation discrimination issue, this is a harder lift because the Supreme Court has not yet taught us or told us whether or not heightened scrutiny will be applied in a formal way to classifications based on sexual orientation. So I want to make the steepest climb. I want to both assume that the most deferential level of review will be applied by the court under the Equal Protection Clause, and I want to assume the definition of marriage that was forwarded by my opponents, and to say that the Equal Protection Clause requires gays to be included within the institution of marriage, even if we understand that marriage has at least a procreative dimension. The first thing I want to point out here, going to Professor Eastman's comments about the propagation of the species, is that gay individuals are not infertile. (laughs) Gay individuals procreate, and in fact, my husband and I have two children, and those two children are among the hundreds of thousands of children in this country alone who are being raised by same-sex couples. So the argument has to be that we're doing a worse job at raising them, and this would be Mr. Gerges's point, than heterosexual couples are doing with their children. And I would only say that this is not a theoretical question. It's an empirical question. And every major professional organization that touches the interests of children, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, the National Association of Social Workers, all of these professional organizations have said that gay parents are doing just as well as straight parents and raising their children. The kids are all right. (laughs) With regard to the second rationale that might be offered is the notion that Professor Eastman alluded to, which is the deinstitutionalization of heterosexual marriage. And the idea here is that if gay people are permitted to get married, then heterosexual couples will lose esteem for the institution and engage in procreative activity outside of the institution. Now, this is counterintuitive at best, you know, as was articulated by one of the witnesses in the Prop 8 trial. I don't think many of you heterosexual people are going to go home and say, you know, we've had a good run, but now that Ted and Steve down the street can get married, we have to throw in the towel, and we're not going to get married anymore. So I think more needs to be said empirically about the deinstitutionalization argument. I want to close with the words of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a canonical 1996 equal protection case, because we are talking about equality. 
She said, the history of our Constitution is a story in which constitutional rights and protections were extended to groups that were previously ignored or excluded. To include those groups, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to oppose this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Kenji Yoshino. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you and our live audience here in Philadelphia. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Arguing in support of this motion, we've heard from John Eastman and Sheriff Girgis. They have argued that the Constitution does not actually settle this issue. It is not explicit at all, but they argue that the traditional vision of marriage, uh, which they, they use the term conjugal, that that vision has historical roots that need to be respected, um, that, in fact, the Equal Protection uh, Clause is only to be summoned in situations Uh, very rare instances when majority rule needs to be asserted, but that this is not one of those cases. Um, They also um, make the point that repeatedly when the court has addressed the issue of marriage as a fundamental right, it has made it clear that the court, in the court's opinion, that is marriage between one man and one woman. Arguing against them, we have heard from um, Evan Wolfson and Kenji Yoshino. They argue that, look, it's very simple. The freedom to marry is the freedom to marry. They cite the fact that there are 60% support in polls for single-sex marriage and argue that given the historical disadvantage of uh, gay people, that only willful blindness would allow the perception um, that same-sex marriage is not constitutionally protected. And they go back to history to the time in 1868 when the Equal Protection Clause was written into the 14th Amendment, pointing out they believe that it was uh, left uh, uh, unspecified. Uh, it was left to future generations to decide what equality was going to mean. I want to go to the team arguing um, against the motion, which in this case means that you uh, actually are arguing that the Constitution uh, supports and requires states to license same-sex marriage. Your opponents are saying that by citing the Equal Protection Clause, you're, you can only do so by fundamentally redefining marriage and in doing so actually creating a new right. And I want to ask you to respond to that. Yeah, I would say that we're not asking for a new right. We are a new group asking for access to an existing right. So, for example, if we look at Loving versus Virginia or Turner versus Safley, which my friend and colleague Evan Wilson referred to, those are cases pertaining to interracial marriage and inmates' marriage. However, when those plaintiffs sought the right to marry, they did not seek the specific right to interracial marriage. They did not seek the specific right to inmate marriage. They sought the right to marry. Uh, John Eastman, you want to respond? Yeah, I do. Look, uh, because the test the Supreme Court has developed for addressing these equal protection questions is whether the groups are similarly situated, you have to be adopting a view of marriage in which the groups are similarly situated to make that claim. And you necessarily have to be rejecting the view of marriage in which the groups are quite obviously not similarly situated. And it's that change in the understanding of the purpose of the institution of marriage that requires us to treat this as a new claim rather than just access to the existing institution. John, just for clarity, what do you mean when 
just uh, if you could be more concrete about the sense of uh, similarly situated. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, any two adult relationships are similarly situated is the purpose of the relationship is to foster the love and commitment between the relationships. And if that's what the purpose of marriage was, then I would say it violates equal protection not to extend same-sex marriage to or not to extend marriage to same-sex couples, to polyamorous or polygamous couples, to adult uh, consenting adult uh, uh, in familial relationships of, of all sorts. Uh, if instead the purpose is this unique biological complementarity of men and women that bring men and women together for the purpose of producing the children that are the result of that union, uh, then two men are not capable of having women. You say you're fertile, that's right, but not, not you know, uh, uh, Kenji says at some point in his book, uh, uh, to say that only men can be fathers and only women can be mothers is to engage in sex stereotyping. No, it's not. It goes to the very essence of the difference between men okay. and women on this core let biological to, purpose. Yeah, let me bring it to Evan Wolfson. Well, uh, very quickly to that, people marry for many reasons, and we do not dictate, we do not have the government dictating to you why you marry the person you love and what your marriage needs to be about. For many people, it is about procreating. For many people, it isn't. For many people, it's about raising children, gay and non-gay parents, uh, raising their kids. And for many people, it's not about raising kids at all. There are many reasons why people marry, and in this free society, that, belong, that choice belongs to us, not to the government, and government is not to be used as a weapon to impose one ideological view on everyone else. But I want to go back to your question, John, where you talked about this question of a new right. You know, from 1776 until 1948, not a single court in the country was willing to strike down restrictions on people seeking to marry someone of, quote-unquote, the wrong sex. And finally, in 1948, the California Supreme Court, John Eastman State, I'm not sure how you felt about it, but John Eastman State said that, struck down race restrictions on marriage. And what the court said in that case was, the essence of the freedom to marry is the right to marry the person who is precious to you. People are not interchangeable, the court said, like trains. It's not like if someone else goes, they, one goes by and you're not allowed to marry that one, you'll just marry the next one. Gay people share the same interest in marrying the person who is precious to us without arbitrary restriction by the government because that's what the freedom to marry is all about. And that's not a new right. That's the right that we as Americans have, and it's the right that gay people seek to share. Sheriff Gergis, I'll come to you one last time on this question of whether it's a new right or not. Uh, no, I mean, of course it's a new right. I mean, it's basically changing the understanding of marriage in order to, to say that same-sex couples are similarly situated. I mean, so the answer to uh, Professor Yoshino's question is, of course the Equal Protection Clause applies to everybody. If a gay person walking into this building, is this a state-run institution? If it were, and a gay person running into this were charged one cent more, however trivial the cost... That's an equal protection violation. That's not what we're talking about. That just begs, it runs right over the question of what marriage is. And here's a clear way to put it. I want to know by what principle Professor Yoshino or um, Evan uh, Wolfson would say, look, if someone says to you, and there are people who say this now, there are three of us, we're three men. We've thrown our lot in for the long haul. We're committed to it through thick and thin. And here's why. It's not because you, you say, oh, well, it's perfectly substitutable. You can settle for one. They say, no, for our identity. That doesn't work. It's not the most fulfilling bond. Surely the principle is recognition of the relationship in which you find most personal fulfillment. We don't want to be stigmatized. We don't want our kids stigmatized. We've been forced into the closet partly because of the gay marriage progress. 
because we're an embarrassment to the movement, but now we want our turn. What is the answer to that? If you know, love I'm, and commitment is the principle. I'm, I'm astonished it took them that long to go there because whenever somebody starts talking about polygamy or all this other stuff, it means they do not have an answer to the question that's on the table. Gay people are not saying, let's have no rules and let's let everything happen. What gay people are saying is, let us have what you have. Just as you have the freedom to marry the person who is precious to you and to build a life together under the law, so would we Does, seek that freedom. Are, are, are you, however, then to some degree calling upon tradition? You, you do want to preserve certain traditional aspects, for example, monogamy. Uh, I'm not sure where you came to that from what I said, but what I would well, say is that... Well, the, the, I, I, think that you were, I think you were casting aspersions on their argument that, that things were going to move to polygamy. And so I'm coming back and saying, huh... Well, that sounds as though you are you, you would not support polygamy and that, that you do not think that that would be a right, that you actually have no. limitations. And I'm not debating you. I'm actually looking for clarification. Right. And what I said is when people try to drag the conversation over to polygamy, it's that they don't have an answer to the question that we're debating tonight, which is what reason does the government have for excluding loving and committed gay couples from what other couples have? We could have a million different other debates. Actually, this is I, just I, an evasion, actually. I'd just Sorry. like to come to this Sorry. point. Gerges. Here's what I was saying. I was saying... You have a principle by which you say whether people are being excluded unfairly or not. Now, if we can just name our principle, we can pick it out of a hat, then, of course, we could win by stipulation. I could say, well, my principle is uh, any man and woman as long as one of them has freckles. And, of course, we would laugh that out of the room. We could say, oh, we apply it equally. I'm asking you why your vision isn't arbitrary compared to this better one, not the okay, one person you find most personal fulfillment, uh, but the relationship. Let's let Kenji answer, answer that question. There's so many answers to that, but let me just begin with one, which is um, you know, what, where Chief Justice Roberts is going during oral arguments with, by asking whether this is sex discrimination. So if you actually think about the current definition of marriage that you hold, and you say a man can marry a woman, but a man cannot marry a man, that is facial sex discrimination. So he asked whether this is sex discrimination, and I think that, you know, on its face, uh, it's very hard to argue that it is not. So when we get to the issue of, you know, polygamy, if you have polygamy, polygamists coming in on the day after the Supreme Court rules, hopefully in favor of same-sex marriage this June, and they say we want to get married, numerosity is not a heightened scrutiny classification, you know, in this country, right? So the sex discrimination argument drives a clean wedge in between uh, the uh, argument about uh, what we're keeping intact about marriage and what we're changing about marriage. And I would go on just a little bit to say, you know, Mr. Gerges has written a, a very, you know, I think thoughtful book about, called What is Marriage? about uh, the marriage debate. And essentially he says there are three principles of marriage. One is that there's a, a kind of mind-body union, uh, which is only attainable apparently by heterosexual couples. The second is uh, that it is oriented towards family, right? And then the third is that it is monogamous and it is hopefully permanent, right? Um, because I don't think you're against all divorce. I think you're only against no-fault divorce. So I go down each one of these and I say, let me go in reverse order. I, I think gay couples are just as capable of monogamy and of permanence. I think gay couples are just as uh, capable of having children in the same way that uh, adoptive parents who are heterosexual have, parent, have children. So unless you want to denigrate you know, adoptive parents who are uh, heterosexual, unless you want to denigrate heterosexuals who use assisted reproductive technology with the assistance of a sperm donor or an egg donor, unless you want to denigrate uh, sterile couples, you know, I think that uh, it would be an arbitrary distinction uh, to keep out gay couples simply because they can't procreate internal to the union. And with regard to the mind-body uh, union, essentially what Mr. Gerges says in his book is that 
a man and a woman, even if both of them are sterile, accomplish something in their sexual coitus right, that is different in kind, right, not in degree, from two men having sex with each other. Right? And so if anyone is stipulating something right, or suggesting that something should be given to him simply by fiat or stipulation, I would posit that it is a person who says there's just something categorically different, even in the absence of procreation, about heterosexual sex and coitus that makes it categorically different from homosexual sex. Well, Sheriff, would you make that point to a judge? Would you make, actually make that argument? Do you stand by that characterization? And uh, would you actually say, well, in fact, Your Honor, yes, there is something different, and that's what we're here arguing. Well, I would say a couple of things about it. First of all, you, know, you disparaged the Greeks and the Romans earlier. The reason in the book that we bring up people who had no connection to Judaism or Christianity had nothing like our modern concept of gay orientation and made remarkably convergent views of marriage. The reason we do that is to show that there's a question for the other side that they haven't been able to answer, which is how did that come about? If it wasn't religion or it wasn't bigotry. And now there are, what, what Professor Yoshino's question shows is that, is that there are ways to describe any view that make it look less plausible. But I can do that for a revisionist view too. I can say, what's so spe- that when two men throw their lot in together and do it for the long haul and share all the burdens and benefits of common life, don't want to be stingers, what's so special about whether what brought them together is that they're two brothers or two best friends or what brought them together is climax? What's so morally significant about orgasm? There's a way of describing the view that denigrates it, but that wouldn't be fair to Professor Yoshino, and it wouldn't be fair to mine either. Let me just take one dimension of the questions that he brought. He said, how can two men not have a bodily union? Well, here's a question. Why is sex integral to bodily union? Everybody in the debate agrees it somehow is. If it's just about fostering and expressing affection and vulnerability and tenderness, then other activities can do that. In In the book, we develop an Aristotelian account where it's about coordinated action towards a single common end that completes and encompasses them both. And that's why the kind of union that a man and a woman can have is different in that respect. Let me, um, I'm going to let Evan respond to that. I feel that we're losing our constitutional filter to some degree. Not, not wi- no, no, not wildly off. That's why I'm asking, would you say these things to a judge? I'm trying to heard you back in there, you didn't pick up on it, but let me let Evan respond, but I want well, to try to return to the Constitution. Well, program. to try to bring it back to the Constitution, but from where uh, Mr. Gerges just left it, the, you know, the Greeks and the Romans' conception of marriage, not to mention many others in between, is not one unified history, historical embodiment of what you're talking about that suddenly is changing. The, the, the idea of marriage, the concept of marriage, the rules of marriage were so completely foreign to anything we as Americans, particularly under our Constitution, would tolerate. The subordination of women, the patriarchal domination of the household, including slaves. I mean, I, the, the ownership of the, of the procreative rights and the, dicta- and the ability to alienate or even kill your own children. I mean, one could go on and on and on. And so it's just sort of ironic to hear that exalted when actually the very plain words of our Constitution guaranteeing equality and the, and the multiple cases talking about the freedom to marry and the evident humanity of gay people seeking that freedom to marry for the same mix of reasons, some of which may have to do with children, but many of which don't and are yet equally important and valid, I think it really just shows if you want to make an argument and you suddenly find something you like in the Greeks and Romans, you're willing to overlook a lot. And apparently you're over willing to overlook a lot in the Constitution if you want to deny something important to gay people. Okay, John Eastman, I want to 
I want to take a question to you. Are you dying to respond? No, I, you can give me the question. I'll okay. figure out a way to respond okay. in any way. <laughs> <laughs> you can save it for your two-minute closing. So, so the, we understand the Equal Protection Clause being something that's triggered in re- relatively extraordinary circumstances, particularly when there's a disadvantaged group of people, sometimes called a class of people. And you've made the argument that this is a matter that should be left up to state legislatures because it doesn't trigger that. I want to know why you're saying, you know, your opponents made a compelling argument for uh, <coughs> centuries of discrimination and, uh, and, and abuse and that, that the, the, you know, the story, the story is pretty much told. Um, it's time for the Equal Protection Clause to, be, to kick in on this. What, why not? Well, so, so it requires us to have a rethinking about the purpose. And Evan has done a very nice job in turning this to why adults enter into the institution of marriage. That's not the relevant question. The question is, why did the state get involved in the marriage business in the first place? And that has nothing to do with it lays its hands on I and mean, gives me dignity because they've given me a marriage license or it, it sanctions my adult relationship. The, the state has no interest or business, quite frankly, in getting involved in the institution of marriage for those purposes. It's this unique procreative ability that does it. And that's, you know, and, it's, and you go back to the Greeks, and every, it's not just the Greeks and, and the Romans, it's every society in human history has come up with the same thing. The, the leading uh, anthropologist, Claude Levi Strout, the family, based on a union more or less durable but socially approved John, of my, two my, individuals. My question is a little bit different. Why should this not be decided by judges but decided yeah, by legislatures? Be, because the question is, it, in order to treat them as an equal protection violation, we have to assume assume that the groups are similarly situated. That, that then requires that I answer a question that the Constitution does not answer. Which view of marriage are we going to have? This adult-centric consent view or the long-standing conjugal view? That question is not answered in the Constitution, and only if you answer that question on the former is it, is it a violation of equal protection. And, that's, and, and who decides that question, I think, is the real critical one. Kenji Yoshino. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little... Um uh, puzzled by that characterization because to me it sounds like uh, if we were debating this back in 1966 on the year before Loving versus Virginia, it would be like saying, oh, well, there are two views of marriage on the table. One view says that you know, God put the five races, this is an actual quotation from a trial court judge, on five different continents, and, but for a violation of his will, the races would not have mixed. Right, so I think the hidden irony of this is that if we were to take that trial court judge at his word, Europeans would all have to go back to Europe, or Caucasians would all have to go back to Europe, and we would, I would have to go back to Asia, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that he had unintended consequences uh, there. Uh, but the view is, you know, are we going to choose uh, the vision of marriage uh, that uh, allows for bans on interracial marriage, or are we going to choose the more inclusive definition of marriage that allows interracial couples access to this existing right. And to me, that's uh, what he's saying, and I do think that the Equal Protection Clause has an answer to that. So I don't think that uh, there's one vision of marriage that the Equal Protection Clause is impermeable to and another vision of marriage uh, to which it speaks. I think that the Equal Protection Clause speaks to the definition of marriage that we have, Right. And just to make a final point here, you know, I haven't heard anything yet about uh, adoptive parents uh, or about uh, sterile couples or about couples who use assisted reproductive technology who are heterosexual. So, you know, if a 70 year old and an 80 year old want to get married. Right. uh, Why should we allow them to marry under your vision? If procreation is so central to the definition of marriage, why would we allow individuals who could not uh, procreate? and were demonstrably unable to procreate or unwilling to procreate if they chose not to procreate when we were younger. Do you want to take a share? I do, yes. So there are a couple points in there. So first of all, 
the interracial marriage thing is a red herring. Do you know where the first place in the world that interracial marriage first came up? It was in the colonial United States. Nancy Cott says this. Why? Because that was a regime of slavery. It was clearly meant. You look at the history, it's impossible to conclude that it was about anything but oppressing the races. To believe that this, there's an analogy here, you would have to believe that biological parenting, thinking that that matters, is on a par with thinking that your skin color matters. And Justice Sotomayor herself has written in a recent case, it's a principle recognized in our cases that the biological bond between a parent and child is meaningful. She would never say the same thing about racial purity, which is the language of these laws. Second thing, on the idea that this isn't something new. Here's a quote. Enlarging the concept to embrace same-sex couples would necessarily transform the institution into something new. That is Bill Eskridge, one of the pioneer legal scholars in favor of same-sex marriage and gay rights for 25 years, admitting the plain fact and just saying it's a good idea. Now, on the last point, of course, no matter what your marriage policy is, you know, we're asking about artificial reproductive technology and so on, no matter what your policy is, there will be households in which kids are being reared without a marriage at the head of the household, on their vision as well. But they want to smuggle those off stage to say that that consideration just for same-sex couples requires just extending it to marriage. I say if there are concrete needs that arise wherever kids are in a home, you need to make a policy available wherever kids are in a home, whether it's a mom and her mom who moved in to help her raise the kid because she's a single mom, which is the most common kind of same-sex parent-led household or otherwise. I want to go to audience questions, so I just want to remind you, but before I do, I just want to put one question to Evan Wilson to take something back from what your opponent said earlier. When they cited, I think, 14 cases where they say the Supreme Court, when discussing uh, marriage as a fundamental right, uh, made it clear that it was between a man and a woman, do you concede that, they actually, that that's actually accurate? And if so, does it matter? Uh, Evan well, it, it is accurate that those cases that had reached the Supreme Court and triggered the rulings in those cases were not about gay people's freedom to marry because it's this case that has brought that question. Right, but, but, so, but does that mean the silence on, relative silence means that it necessarily meant one man no, and one woman? No, because we're talking, about, we're talking about the freedom to marry, and the question is whether the freedom to marry can be denied to this group of people, this individual, this couple, and the reasons that they bring before but, the court. But the notion that there's this precedent is, is, does not weigh very heavily with you. Well, I don't cons- that's not a precedent. Okay. That's just... That's just where we, the, the record in which we've gotten to right now. And, you know, 65 courts have had no problem taking the principles that underlay those rulings and applying them now to this question involving these people being denied for these reasons. And I just have to say, it's now my turn to be a little puzzled about the reference to children because, again, marriage is not just about children. There are many, many reasons why gay people should and and deserve the freedom to marry, just as many, many non-gay people deserve the freedom to marry. And even Justice Scalia has said that if your argument rests on the procreative argument your denial of marriage to gay people is on very shaky ground. Now, I rarely agree with Justice Scalia, but, but when he's right, he's right. And he, he was right there. But what does speak in this conversation and in this debate is the voice of those children who, like Kenji's kids, are being raised by gay parents. And the denial of the freedom to marry harms those children and harms those families, and there's no good reason for it. And that's another reason why the Constitution forbids this kind of discrimination. Let's go to some questions. Uh, just if, wait for the mic to come down from your right side, and if you could stand up and tell us your name, please. It's going to be handed down to you. Uh, it's uh, back three rows. Thanks. If you can wave to the mic. Thanks. 
oh, I have this request. Really pose a question. Don't debate with the debaters. So whatever you want to say, go for it. Okay. You look confident, so go for it. Okay, you want my name. It's Lynn Liss. The question is, I would like uh, those who are talking about children to ask if uh, they would require in the uh, marriage certificate to, for those people getting married to swear, in addition to all the other information that they have to uh, put in, that they are going to have children uh, or if they are unable to have children and if that will be a requirement for marriage. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to – I'd prefer to pass on the question, and, and I think you can come up and chat with them because it's an interesting one, but I don't think it's helping us on the constitutional thing that you all need to vote on. So with respect, I'm going to pass on it right here. And you could pass the mic down front. So that's sort of what I'm, I'm hoping for, and I say that with respect to the question that I don't take. Try to keep it on the topic, and by the way, it was a perfectly framed question. <laughs> Hi, my name is Samantha Harris. Um, and – what I want to know is looking at marriage as a child-centered institution, there are now large numbers of people in two-parent households, gay and straight, where it is not, I think the way that you put it was, was the best, They're not, the child is not the biological product of the union. They may be adopted, it may be donor eggs, it may be donor sperm, but you have similarly situated families, two parents and a child who is not the biological child of both or either parents. And in that situation, with those two-parent households, I want to know why the state does not have an interest in affording all of those children and their parents the same legal protections. Yeah, so, so, look, um, cu- couple John of, a, a couple of things. One, uh, we don't have any evidence yet, one way or the other, whether uh, issuing a marriage license itself to adoptive parents, to same-sex parents, has any effect on the upbringing of the children. What we do know is when, 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 it's, it, when, it's, uh, when you move away from both biological parents, the increased risk to serious emotional and developmental problems to the children is more than doubles. That's true whether the parents are same-sex. It's true whether the parents are opposite sex. It's true when you have one lacking in the biological connection. And so if you take that, and the, the most comprehensive data set we have is from the Centers for Disease Control that demonstrates you go from 7% to 17.5% risk to the kids when both biological parents are not involved. Now, that means there are 82% in, in non-biological parent households of the kids that are doing just fine. But that differential uh, is significant. It's significant for the state's reason in getting involved in the marriage business in the first place. And when you alter the understanding of marriage, that discourages a significant number of people who are the biological parents of that child from entering into that relationship and that institution for raising that child, you cause pretty catastrophic harms to kids. And that's why the state has a fundamental interest here in not weakening that institutional draw that every society in human history has settled on for the best way to encourage that, that relationship and that structure. Kenji Yoshino. Just put very simply, that seems to be a very good argument uh, on your part for why you should be against artificial reproductive technology, but not a good argument for why you should be against same-sex marriage. Another question? Right there. Hi, 
Hi there, my name is Joan Marie Dalvecchio. My question is for John Eastman. So as you may be aware, uh, marriage and familial relationships um, often provide, are given a package of government benefits, you know, tax purposes, birth, death certificates, things like that. So if there can exist single parents and married heterosexual couples without children that are on the receiving end of some of these government uh, benefits, what is the legitimate state interest in preventing same-sex couples from being on the receiving end of these same benefits? Yeah. So, so the same question. The, the, the state's interest, we're not looking at any individual case, but institutionally. And if I create an institution where I encourage people to enter in that institution who have the unique capability of, of creating children through their own sexual relations in a way that no other relationship has, the state has an interest in encouraging as many of those people as they can in the institution of marriage. And that's why we preside provide all sorts of incentives, including benefits to that. Now, now I suppose I could get more perfect in my drawing of the line. I could have some, some uh, government uh, dictate out there and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come by your house every Thursday night to make sure you're having sexual relations. I could do all sorts of things. Um, but we know for a fact that when men and women have sexual relations, they tend to have kids, whether by, on purpose or accident. It's a result of that conduct. It's part of the nature of the relationship. Uh, and that's why we create the institution to channel that unique ability there. And if I alter that and I say this is all about the parents, the, the, the loving relationship between the parents, I have undermined the reason the state got involved in the business in the first place. And I've weakened the institutional draw. Let me just, you know, the, John, the, let me, let me, yeah, let me go, sorry, I'm, yeah. I, I, I filibuster. It's, but, <laughs> well, I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Well, we're sort of arguing it out over that motion. Um, let's see if we can – would you like to respond to well, – uh, I, I would just say – I, I, Again, I, in, the, in the end, you're going to have to vote on whether you think the Equal Protection Clause applies, which is a different issue from the policy debates – that we're discussing now and effects on families. So I, I want to I ask you to raise your hand knowing that that's what you're going to do. But go ahead, Evan yeah, I, I think one of the striking consequences of the degree to which we have shown there is no good reason for denying gay people the freedom to marry is that our opponents are left making such an impoverished argument about marriage, such a, such a dismissive argument about heterosexuals or about parents or what they need in order to preserve their bonds or to get married in the first place, when in fact what we're talking about is something that for many people is a high aspiration and a worthy thing and, and, a, and a thing of great dignity and meaning and it involves kids and it involves parents but it also involves people coming together in love to care for one another it brings families together it knits the community together and, and you would know none of that from their argument in fact Ms. Professor Eastman said a little while ago that the state has no interest in any of that all it has an interest in is imposing his ideological view about biology and complementarity well I don't think that's right and I think it's precisely because the American people have come to understand that that just doesn't hold up it's not true that they've understood how it is unfair to sever out gay people as the one group of people who cannot get married. Octogenarians can get married. Sterile people can get married. People who renounce having children can get married. But gay people, even when they're raising children, under this view, would be denied the freedom to marry. And that down, makes no sense down under the here. Constitution. The mic's coming from your right side. Hi, my name is Scheherazade Jackson, and I am from a mixed couple. <laughs> so 100 years ago, I would not have been able to get married, let alone 
my children would have had many issues. But my question is, are you saying the Constitution can't grow and breathe with our generation? That was perfect. <laughs> let's, let's, let, let's kick that one around a little bit. Uh, let, let's, do you want to take that, um, uh, Sheriff Gierges? I think the Constitution, from the moment the 14th Amendment was passed, was big enough to say that interracial marriage is a fundamental right. At every step of the way, they have to elide over the difference between seeing marriage as a romantic bond, where the other connections are by case by case, optional, by choice, in which case, by the way, it does, it's, it's not very clear why it has to still be linked to romance. If, if two people who aren't romantically interested in each other, or if a, a, sis, a, a single mom has her sister move in to, move, to raise the kids together, have they made their relationship oriented to family life? I mean, it goes back to this question. Um, you know, does, the inter, does the state interest change when the two adults aren't uh, in a romantic bond? So I, I think their vision can't explain any of these connections, but they have to elide over it. Whereas the interracial marriage thing is straightforward. There's no way of reading the history and thinking this wasn't fundamentally about keeping blacks and whites apart to keep the whites on top. And the court itself said that. Here, by contrast, again, it's impossible to look at the history and think the only purpose is to oppress gay people. Kenji Yoshino. Yeah, so uh, I think that uh, one of the reasons why we keep collapsing into a policy debate is that we're offering them the lowest level of review possible. So if you're only applying rational basis review, you ask the other side, what are your even conceivable justifications? Right? And so that's why I think we're getting a lot of policy debate and policy questions, uh, because they're producing justifications that um, are, uh, in my view, uh, inadequate. Uh, I want to make another point, though, about the Equal Protection Clause uh, to be responsive to something that um, Mr. Gerges said about how is it that uh, organizations or cultures, uh, cultures really, that were very progressive with regard to gay rights, at least uh, on the surface, nonetheless were opposed to uh, same-sex marriage. So he raised the example uh, of the Greeks. So I would say, you know, this often takes, uh, I think, the more um, plausible form, and um, this is not a knock, I mean, uh, Mr. Gorgas has made this more plausible argument of how can we argue that in this country, same-sex marriage was, uh, the bars in same-sex marriage were enacted with any kind of animus, given that the gay rights movement wasn't even in existence. Can you give everybody, 18... the term animus came up earlier, can you just give the, the one-sentence meaning? Yeah, uh, animus in, is a term of art in constitutional law, and it means moral dis- disapproval of a particular group. Yeah. And uh, it is not simple moral dis- disapproval of a particular group is not sufficient in order to uh, carry the day uh, with regard to justifying a law. Um, and I would actually be interested in hearing both of my parties opposite. You know, t- I would be very curious to know whether or not you believe, uh, whether you morally disapprove of same-sex relationships, not same-sex individuals, but whether or not you have moral disapproval of same-sex sexual conduct. And I think that's a relevant issue Right, because not under the animus, you know, torch-wielding villagers, you know, you're terrible people kind of claim, but just simple moral disapproval, which is the only constitutional standard uh, that we need in order to strike down uh, this uh, ban, uh, whether or not you have that. Why, but, but, why is it rel- again, why is it relevant yeah, here, what their personal I, views are? Yeah, but, but let me, well, let me, let me take wait, wait, the, the governmental views. I just want to understand, yeah. why is it relevant whether, what, their, what his personal views are as opposed to the constitutional argument? Because I think that when you run out of arguments in constitutional law, uh, what's left is the residue. And the way that things are reasoned out under rational basis review is you ask the other side to produce all of their justifications. And then if there's nothing left, 
then the idea is there's animus involved. It's simple moral disapproval. We've we've offered lots of rationales. You disagree with them or don't like them, but that doesn't mean they're not perfectly valid rationales. Here's here's what was said when the North Carolina uh, statute was proposed. Moms and dads are not interchangeable. Two men do not make a mom. Two moms do not make a dad. Children need both a mother and a father. Now, I'm going to quote from that other real radical conservative on the Supreme Court, Justice Ginsburg, in the VMI case Professor Yoshima talked earlier. Physical differences between men and women, however, are enduring. The two sexes are not fungible. A community made up exclusively of one sex is different from a community composed of both. That's the critical to understanding this natural understanding of marriage, that it brings together the unique biological rooted in nature complementarity of men and women for a purpose that is different than all of the collateral purposes we often assign to marriage. But the state's interest uh, in furthering that institution for that purpose is why we are here but and John, we have But John, what about the gauntlet that was just thrown down asking whether you have moral disapproval and that's in your arguments yeah, and whether it's, that's it's completely irrelevant. Whether I think gay sex and heterosexual sex are on a moral similar plane or not is Just completely me, irrelevant to the constitutional question. Let's, let's say it's, it's completely irrelevant to the constitutional question, as it was to what 6 million or 7 million Californians voted who voted for Proposition 8 thought about that question. Well, the issue uh, is, under rational John, basis review, Professor Yusino, as you under, know, the issue is whether there is any plausible explanation that is rational. We have offered several, which you have not rebutted, and under rational basis review, that is more than sufficient. And quite frankly, the, the, because of the compelling interest that the state has in fostering this bond, it meets heightened scrutiny as well. Uh, so I've given you one assumption, which is to say, right, let me say, you know, heightened scrutiny does not apply. Give me one assumption, which is to say, now let's assume that, you know, I don't credit your rationales, right? So I just want a yes or no but, question. But, so do you but, believe that there's something, yeah. this is a policy matter, morally objectionable about same-sex sexual it, conduct? It's completely irrelevant. It's a yes or con- no. I, no. I don't care. No, I mean, just give can, that to you me. You can press it all you want. It's completely irrelevant to the constitutional We've question. We've reached an I'm impasse, get- and we have also reached the end of round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. And immediately after that, we'll have you vote a second time. And your vote, the difference between your two votes, will determine our winner. Motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Here to summarize his position supporting the motion, Sharif Girgis, you you, uh, can sit for this one. Sharif Girgis, co-author of the book, What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Sharif Girgis. I think love and companionship and commitment and mutual care are valuable in themselves wherever they show up. Here's a quote. I understood marriage as the rare place where law and love converge. That's from Professor Yoshino's lyrical account of his own story in conjunction with a policy case for same-sex marriages, which is what his book on Prop 8 is. It's giving you reasons for that policy. Now, here's another quote and another view. I've never been fully out as Polly. I have to live knowing that someone I love thinks that if her mother knew that she has a second partner to love and support her, take care of her kids, it might lead to shaming and rejection. Some people's innate personality means they would never feel emotionally satisfied in a monogamous relationship any more than a gay man would in a straight marriage. That's from Michael Carey, who had to write under a pseudonym in Slate. Now, maybe Professor Yoshino wants to say that if he's against polyamory, it must mean that he thinks these are sinners. I doubt that. It doesn't make any sense as an inference. They also want you to squint at the Constitution and see that the Constitution requires ratifying 
Professor Yoshino's view in his book, but somehow leaves this one out in the cold. I don't see that either. They're both policy debates. Here's a third view. A woman who, tr- who this is from a woman who grew up in a gay welcoming community by her own lights with two moms. She says, I have a few fuzzy memories of my father's unfamiliar voice wishing me a happy birthday. Wonderful memories with my two mothers. But one thing they couldn't meet the need, one need they couldn't meet was for a father, not because they weren't good enough parents. I love a man I don't even know, who by all accounts is a lousy father. I ached for him to love me. Promoting same-sex parenting guarantees that a child will miss out on her mother or father. That's Heather Barwick writing to the Supreme Court in this case. Look, we're not telling you any of these is immoral or moral. We're not telling you that any of them is off the table, but they are. They're saying that somehow the Constitution rules Heather's voice out of this conversation, and we're saying it treats all of them on a par. Thank you, Sheriff Gerges. The motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Here to make his closing statement against this motion, Kenji Yoshino. He's author of the book Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial. So I always wear a suit when I teach my classes in constitutional law, and one of my colleagues once asked why I dress so formally. And I said, I think the law is an honorable profession. And he guffawed. And he said, most of your graduates are going to go out and help large corporations beat the crap out of each other. So don't get on your high horse. Why do you think this is such an honorable profession? And so I had to think about why I thought it was such an honorable profession. So I went back up to my office, and I thought about it for a while. And here's what I came up with. Were it not for the law, a life that would have previously been as unimaginable as the questioner who talked about her interracial marriage would have been unimaginable for me. At the time when I came out, I was extraordinarily fortunate that sodomy laws were on the wane and that I would no longer be deemed a criminal for engaging in sexual conduct with somebody of the same sex. By the time I met the man to whom I made a monogamous lifelong commitment to, it was possible to marry him in the state of Connecticut. And by the time Ron and I, my husband and I, decided that we wanted to have children, surrogacy laws and adoption laws made it possible for us to welcome first a daughter and now a son into the world. So whenever I hear people like my party's opposite, as much as I respect them, make arguments about how this is just about the selfish desires of adults rather than giving the maximum protection to our children, or that we're somehow radically changing the definition of marriage rather than fulfilling everything that marriage might mean. I always think back to my husband and to my two children and think that I've been completely deprived and inoculated of any capacity to be cynical about the law because every time I needed the door to push a door open in my life, it pushed. And now we're at a moment where we can stop living under the Equal Protection Clause And finally, as gays and lesbian couples, live up to it. Thank you, Kenji Yoshino. The motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to make his closing statement in support of the motion, John Eastman, chairman of the board of the National Organization for Marriage. So 50 years ago, legislatively, we changed one of the core aspects of marriage 
uh, with no-fault divorce, and that's had pretty dramatic consequences. You change an institution, you're necessarily going to change that institution's norm-inducing behavior. Uh, in 2012, the European Con uh, uh, Court of Human Rights said that the European Convention of Human Rights, their constitution, does not require member state governments to grant same-sex couples access to marriage. And yet, just last week, Ireland voters chose to do that. What we're asking here is that the same thing applies in our constitution. It doesn't settle this question. Uh, the question ought to be up to the voters on whether we're going to embark upon such a fundamental retransformation of the very purpose of the institution of marriage. Uh, Justice Kennedy himself, a year ago, uh, says that the respondents in this case, in a different case, uh, insist that a difficult question of public policy must be taken from the reach of the voters. That is inconsistent with the underlying premises of a responsible, functioning government. If he went further. He said, it's demeaning to the democratic process to presume that voters are not capable of deciding an issue of this sensitivity on decent and rational grounds. Uh, he says, freedom embraces the right, indeed the duty, to engage in a rational civil discourse. We've had one tonight. In order to determine how best to form a consensus to shape the destiny of the nation and its people. If we settle this through the normal political uh, uh, means, we will all have a much greater stake in the resolution than if it is imposed on us by the court. Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, that, that, uh, addressed that point. The candid citizen must confess that the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instance they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions. The people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. The Constitution doesn't settle this question. We ought to let we the people do it. Thank you, John Eastman. And the motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to make his statement, uh, his closing statement in uh, opposition to the motion, Evan Wilson. He is author of the book, Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry. A little over a week ago, I flew home to Pennsylvania, where I grew up, to celebrate my sister's wedding. And after 10 years together, 11 years together, with her longtime partner, she and Patty were able to marry because we had brought the freedom to marry to Pennsylvania. At the wedding were our parents, my niece and nephews, my brothers, my sister, of course, getting married, Patty's family, our friends, their friends, and family, and it was beautiful. In a few days, my husband and I will fly home again to Pittsburgh to celebrate my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. And I'm quite sure that my parents, as we toast them and celebrate 60 years of love and commitment and joy and sacrifice and dedication, will insist on offering a toast to my sister and her wife. Nobody's wedding took anything away from anybody else's wedding. Nobody's marriage took anything away from anybody else's marriage. There was enough marriage to share. And sharing the rights, the guarantees, the joy, the love, the dignity, the support that our Constitution makes affordable to all of us is exactly what our Constitution requires. What our Constitution does not require and does not tolerate is that we have to ask permission of others to share in the same freedoms, the same rights, the same dignity that are our birthright as Americans under the Constitution. The Constitution guarantees the freedom to marry, 
and there is enough marriage to share. Happily, a majority of Americans have come to understand this. An overwhelming majority of judges now who have had to look at these kinds of arguments and assess the evidence have found it too, and I urge you to do what we hope the Supreme Court will do, reject this discrimination, and affirm the freedom to marry for all. Thank you, Evan Wilson. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has presented the stronger argument. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat and vote a second time. Take a look at the motion. We'll put it up on the screens. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. If you agree with this statement, if you're with this side, push number one. If you disagree with it, you're with this side, push number two. If you became or remain undecided, push number three. And we'll lock out the votes in, um, in just a minute, and then we'll have the results about one minute after that. But while we're waiting, um, I, I just want to say, um, you know, John Eastman said in his closing statement that we had a, a civil and respectful discourse here tonight. I agree with that. There's a, you know, this is one of those where there's a very, very large, large gulf, uh, and, and, it, and it can get very personal, and, in, and, and it did, but not in a way that was, uh, I don't think, hurtful. It was respectful, uh, and respect was shown by all sides, to all sides. So I want to congratulate all of you for, for how you conducted yourself and for the level of debate you brought. And uh, again, uh, even the questions that I didn't take, I want to thank everybody who got up and asked a question, and um, especially down front for your wonderful question where, where I had to stop you from going on. It was, it was perfect. So thank you for that. And, uh, and it was uh, great to have all of your participation today, uh, today in the debate. I want to thank also our partners in this, the National Constitution Center. Uh, we love doing this series and taking... Uh, to taking these uh, constitutional cracks at these issues. And, and, and I, I take your point. This was one where it's, it's hard to keep the public policy out of it because in a certain way it actually uh, becomes relevant to the arguments that are going to be made uh, before judges in any case. Um, the program was also made possible through a grant uh, from the John Templeton Foundation to the National Constitution Center. Our uh, thanks also to the foundation for that. Um, and I want to thank... Uh, Everybody who's, who uh, bought tickets for tonight's event and would love to see you coming to future events and also visit us uh, in New York, uh, our ticket sales do not come close to covering the cost of mounting one of these debates. So um, if, you are, if the spirit moves you, if you go to our website, iq2us.org, you can make a donation. Every gift really does count, uh, and, um, and it keeps us going so that we can do more. If you happen to find yourself in Aspen this summer, if you happen to find yourself in Aspen this summer... <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't read things straight from the card. <laughs> if you happen to find yourself in Aspen this summer, having arrived there by your private jet, we will be, I'm happy to say, partnering with the Aspen Strategy Group on August 9th. We're going to be debating ISIS, and tickets will be available through our website again. Uh, and we're going to be back in New York for our fall season, um, which will include another debate uh, partnered with the NCC, but that one will be in New York. And we're going to be announcing our fall, uh, full, lineup, uh, full, full fall lineup this summer, um, but you can get that on our website. Uh, as well. So I have the final results. Again, the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second votes will be declared our winner. The motion is this. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. On the first vote, 13 percent agreed with that motion. 53 percent were against and 34 percent were undecided. 
Those are the first results. Remember, the team that changes the numbers most between the two votes has declared our winner. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 14%. That was up one percentage point. That will be the number to beat, one percentage point. Let's see the team arguing against their motion. Their first vote was 53%. Their second vote was 83%. They pulled up over 30 percentage points. So it's the team arguing against the motion declared our winner. They argued against the motion. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.